the great and glorious God. Lord, your power is beyond anything that we can even begin to comprehend. But yet, Lord, your power is at work in us. Lord, we pray that you would give us spiritual eyes and minds and hearts. Lord, to see and to understand and to walk in that power, to walk in your power. so that you would be glorified in our lives and in this church. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do you daydream about? What do you think about when your mind drifts? What sort of things do you imagine? It's really an important question, isn't it? Because in Proverbs 23, 7, it says that as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You can tell a lot about a person by what drifts through their minds in the course of a day, by what they spend their time focusing on. Well, I wonder, what do you think was in John Lennon's heart when he penned the words to the song, Imagine? So imagine there's no heaven, it's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us, only sky. Imagine all the people living for today, and the song goes on. John Lennon was imagining, was telling us to imagine that there is no God. I can't think of anything worse to imagine than that. Yet, this is one of the best-selling singles of all time. Rolling Stone magazine put out a list of the, the top 500 songs of all time, and they listed this song as number three. What do you think was in the hearts of, of those people that had made that song so popular? What do you imagine? What, what's in your heart? What do you think about? Well, whatever you imagine, God can do more. God can do more than you can even pray. Let me read the passage for us again. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. That passage really sparks your imagination, doesn't it? Paul's saying here that God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or all we think by his power that is at work within us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I, I look at this, it, I think to myself, well, I can think of some pretty good stuff. And so, Paul, you're saying that God can do even more than that? 
That's what Paul is saying in these final two verses of chapter 3. He is praising God for all that he is doing and all that he is going to do in his people. Well, in order to understand this passage, it would be helpful, once again, for us to consider and to ask questions of the text, like in Rudyard Kipling's poem, I keep six honest serving men, they taught me all I knew. Their names are what and why and when and how and where and who. So we're going to ask these questions of Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21, in order to understand what God would say to us this morning through his inspired apostle. First of all, the who. Who is this passage addressed to? Well, you can see here that, that Paul has transitioned from telling the church about the prayer that he was praying for them in, in verses 3 to, to, to 19, but now he's transitioning. You can see in those verses, he repeatedly used the pronoun you, but now he is saying now to him, to him. Well, who is the him that Paul is talking about? He uses the same term again there in verse 21. To him be glory. Who is him? Is this God the Father? Is it God the Son? Is it God the Spirit? Yes. Yes, it's all three. It's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is the triune God. Father, Son, and Spirit. If you remember the, the quote that I shared with you uh, back when we were doing our, our series on the Trinity from Gregory of Nazianzus. He said, No sooner do I conceive of the one than I am illumined by the splendor of the three. No sooner do I distinguish them than I am carried back to the one. I cannot grasp the greatness of that one so as to attribute a greater greatness to the rest. When I contemplate the three together, I see but one torch and cannot divide or measure out the undivided light. This is who the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He is talking about the triune God. This passage is addressed to God. And so Paul here has transitioned from telling the Ephesians about his prayer for them into a doxology. These last two verses are a doxology, and doxology literally means glory words. Glory words. So these are glory words. It's, a doxology is like a, a short hymn of praise. We know that the, the whole Bible is filled with glory words, isn't it? But these doxologies are usually additions quite often to, uh, they're often there at the end of, of a book of the Bible or at the end of a section in the Bible, and it's, it's a, a hymn of praise praising God for who He is and what He has done. And so Ephesians 3, 20 and 21 are a doxology. And they form here an end of this section in the first half of Paul's letter to the Ephesian churches. He's just spent the whole three chapters dealing with doctrinal foundations of what God is has done and is doing for his people. And then in, in this chapter 4, the second half of this epistle, he gets very practical. This is the practical application of the doctrine that he has, that he has so clearly and powerfully taught in the first half of this letter. And the Apostle Paul often does that. He'll begin with, with theological foundations, and then he'll move into the so what. He'll begin to describe what that means for the people of God. 
The same is true also in Romans. The, the passage that Joshua read for us earlier, Romans 11, 33-36, it, it closes the doctrinal section of the book of Romans, and then Paul, with the beginning of chapter 12, will move into the practical application of that in, verses, in chapters 12-16. to 16. So these words, this is this Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21, are glory words. They're glory words praising God for His power at work in the church. And it's really fitting that the Apostle Paul would include this particular doxology here. Remember, he began the letter in, in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, he began it with that, that glorious run-on sentence that is also a doxology, praising God for all that He has done for His people. And now he's just finished praying that, that the Ephesian Christians would be empowered to know the work of God in their lives, and that they would be empowered that Christ would, in, would, would dwell in them, again, not for salvation, but would powerfully dwell in them for the work that God has called them to do. We just pray that they would know the, the breadth and the, the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of God that surpasses all understanding, the love of Christ that surpasses all understanding. We talked last week about the, the irony of the fact that he is commanding the church, or is praying that the church would know what cannot be known. To know what cannot be known. And he's saying that this cannot happen just through a mere intellectual exercise. This requires the work of the sovereign God in the hearts of his people. This is a work of the Holy Spirit. This is that the, the, he prays that they would be strengthened with power through his spirit in their inner being. And so now he's praising God for that power. He finished that section in, in verse 19 with, with what we describe as, as the boldest prayer that has ever been uttered by anyone, everywhere, anywhere. He says, that he prays that, that the church would be filled with all the fullness of God. The boldest prayer that has ever been prayed. What happened when Moses prayed that God would show him his glory? God said to him, you can't see my glory. I'm just going to show you that the back part of my glory. And, and I, have to, I have to protect you. I have to hide you in the cleft of the rock as my glory passes by. Because you can't handle even seeing my glory. And here the Apostle Paul is praying that the church would be filled with that glory. And if you've even gotten a glimpse of what God's glory is in, in any way, shape, or form from His Word, then you understand that, that this, is, this is an incredible thing. That the church will be filled with the glory of God. And then in verses 20 to 21, He's saying, you're doing it. He's saying, you are at work. You are at work in your people. You are at work in your church. And it goes beyond our wildest dreams. And Paul is saying, He is the God who is able. And this, these ver this verse is, is full of words of power. Able, do, power, at work. They all speak of God's power. 
Again, God's power has really been the focus over the last two chapters, hasn't it? We pray that, that people, that they would know God's power, or that they would understand God's power, and that, that they would experience God's power. Now he's praising God for that power. This is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the same power that, that seated Christ with him in the heavenly places. This is the same power that raised the Ephesian Christians and us, if you were here as a Christian this morning. This is the same power that raised you from the dead and has seated you with Christ in the heavenly places. That power is at work in you even now. This is the same power that united Jew and Gentile. There is no limit to God's power. The only limit is to our prayer and to our imagination, as we'll see in a moment. When we talk about God's power, we use words like sovereignty and omnipotence. Sovereignty simply means that, that God rules the entire universe. Abraham Kuyper said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. But it goes further. God's sovereignty extends to all of His creation. There is not one rebel molecule in all of the universe. It is all under His sovereign control. We talk about God being omnipotent. It means all-powerful. God is all-powerful. There is nothing that He cannot do except sin. And He, at this very moment, this very moment, is sustaining the universe. Every star and planet, every microbe and molecule by His omnipotence. And, and this, we learn in, in Colossians, Jesus was doing this. That Jesus is, was sustaining the universe and has been doing so for all time. Even when he was walking the earth, he was still upholding the universe by his sovereign power, by his omnipotence. That is the power of God. So this then takes us to the question, what? What is it that God is doing? Well, we can see from here that, that whatever it is, it's far more abundant than anything that we can ask or imagine. It's greater than our greatest prayers and greater than our, than our imaginations. So we want to ask the question again, what is it that you imagine? Some people like John Lennon imagine that there is no God. Now, none of us are above such blasphemous thoughts. We're not above having those thoughts pass through our minds, but I hope and pray that that does not describe you. But some of us, even though we might not have atheistic imaginations, we have immoral imaginations. And our minds are filled with all sorts of vile things. Anger. Lust. Selfishness, pride, apathy, depression. That is true of some of us all the time, and all of us some of the time. And so Paul bids our minds and our imaginations to go higher. 
Well, some imagine things like big muscles or a big house by the water. Others imagine their team winning the Stanley Cup or, or having a head full of hair. Or maybe even on this cold morning, you imagine being on a tropical beach somewhere. Well, there's nothing wrong with any of those things per se. But again, God wants you to raise your mind higher. He wants you to imagine something immeasurably more. Some of us are like worms underneath a coffin. All we're aspiring to is to that rotting flesh that is in that coffin. And when we live for the things that the world lives for, we're just like a worm under a coffin. God wants to raise our minds immeasurably higher. So what do you imagine? Maybe a, a happier marriage, or a better relationship with your kids, or a, a better relationship with your parents, fulfillment of your job, growth in the church, growth in yourself. Well, maybe you're, you're at a point where you're bothered by what's in your imagination, so you imagine having a better imagination. You imagine having a, a sanctified imagination. You imagine yourself as, be, as, as being more loving or more encouraging or with more wisdom or a better prayer life. You're thinking, now we're getting somewhere. Now we're starting to, to, to begin to get in line with the kinds of things that, that God wants us to be thinking about and to be focused on. What if I said to you that God wants you to have all of those things? Beloved, God wants you to have all of those things and immeasurably more. God is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. I like the way the, the King James expresses it or phrases it here. He says, Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly above. Exceedingly above. And the Apostle Paul here actually made up a word. This is a word that doesn't exist anywhere else in, in Greek literature. Paul made up this word because he, he was just, he could not, there, a human language did not have a word that described what he was trying to portray. So God wants us to have all of those things and immeasurably more. So what's going on here? If, I, if somebody replaced your usual preacher with a clone, have I been transmogrified into a prosperity preacher? Not at all. These are the things that God wants for His people. But I am not saying, I'm not preaching that you can have your best life now. Each of those things that, that I just described, Paul exhorts the church to in the second half of the book of Ephesians. But this again is, is not just so that you'll have a happier, more comfortable life. So why? Our next question. Why then is God doing all of this? If your focus is just on having a better marriage or a better relationship with your parents or your kids or your boss or in the church or, or even if your focus is on overcoming sin, 
Those, all of them, very good things, but if you are focusing on them as an end unto themselves, then you really miss the point of the book of Ephesians. You miss the point of what the Apostle Paul is saying here. And you're going to miss the point when we get into those practical applications starting next week. Those things, as I said, they're all good in and of themselves, but they're, they're for something immeasurably more. They're for the glory of God. They're for the glory of God. All of those things are, are never meant to be an end unto themselves, but they are to take our minds higher to the glory of God, to cause us to live our lives for the glory of God. They're for God's glory. And you can see there that that power that he's talking about here, that power is actually at work within us. It's at work within us so that He will be glorified. It is all for the glory of His name. So your family, your work, your church, your life is all for the glory of God. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. We realize that we fall short of that, don't we? Really, a lot of the time, we, we don't live for the glory of God. We live for the, the more mundane things of this world, or even worse, we live for sin. And those worms that are that, that coffin are, are, are a better reflection of God than, than we are. Before you came to Christ, that was true of you all the time. Because without faith it is impossible to please God. And so everything that you did was tinged with selfishness, wasn't it? Even when you served people, there was really a, a, a sense of, of wanting to, to gain from that somehow. What the Apostle Paul is saying here, brothers and sisters, is that you are the greatest display of God's glory on the entire earth. You, you are the greatest display of God's glory on the entire earth. God is at work in you, doing those very things, the very things that He is, is going to be, that Paul's going to be commanding us to do here in the second half. God is already at work doing those things. He's at work doing it. Remember the, the theme that we've seen it again and again here, that God is at work in His people. Paul had prayed that they would understand it and that they would, that they would get it. But God is at work in the hearts of His people. God is at work in your heart at this very moment. God is at work in your heart. In the power of the Holy Spirit, He's helping you to fight sin. He's helping your marriage. He's improving your relationship with your kids or your parents. He's helping you with your boss, with your employees. And He is building His church. He's helping you to overcome the sin that once held you in its clutches. He is helping you to become the person that you want to be because He's making you the person that He wants you to be. God is at work in His church. We were made in His image. That image was effaced by the fall. But 
God in Christ has restored that image and he is continuing to restore it. And that process will continue in you for the rest of your life. This is the will of God, your sanctification. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 God wills you to become more like Jesus. Brothers and sisters, you were predestined to be more like Jesus. Romans 8.29 God is doing it, and He's doing it right now. He's doing it now. His power is at work in your life. Have you noticed it lately? Have you stopped to consider what God is doing. And you, we can, all of us who are Christians can look back and see the way that God has changed us and, and made us more like His Son. And, and some of our sins were more, were more glaring than others. But, but we can, can track and we can see that, that we are different than we once were, can't we? Now some of us here have a very sensitive consciences and, and I need to, to when, I, when I talk about this kind of self-examination, uh, I need to put in a, a caveat or a warning here because there's this, a tendency for, for some of us to only see our failures. For some of us only to see the ways that we are still sinful. But what you need to do is to step back and to think not just in the minutia of your life, but over the course of your life, the direction of your life, of, of the way that, that this, my, my word, tra trajectory of your life. As you've grown in the, in the, in the, the, the months and, and years since you've been a, become a Christian, you can see the direction. If you can't see it, ask others. Ask those who are closest to you if, if they can see God at work in your life. Ask someone that you know that, that, that loves you and is going to, to tell you the truth and, and to, to look for that very carefully and prayerfully. This is really one of our responsibilities for each other, isn't it? We talk about, the Apostle Paul is going to go on in chapter 4 talking about, about building each other up. One of the ways we do that is by, evident, by, by declaring to others the evidence of evidences of grace you see in their lives. To say, I see God at work in you when you love your brother or sister like, like that, or when you serve in the church like that, or, or when you share the gospel with somebody even though you're afraid to. The trajectory of your lives, God is at work. He hasn't stopped since he started. Whether he saved you six months ago or 60 years ago, he has not stopped and will not stop until the end of your life. Christ is the image of the invisible God. And as you grow more like Christ, he is glorified in you. You are the greatest display of God's power on earth. You think about all of the miracles that God did throughout the Bible. Some of the, some of the biggest ones. You know, like parting the Red Sea. Or making the walls of Jericho to fall down. And all of the people that, that Jesus healed. Raising Lazarus from the dead. The work that he's done in you is greater than that. The reality is, at least as we saw from the beginning of chapter 2, that, that he raised you from the dead as well. But not just from physical death, he raised you from spiritual death. 
Spurgeon declared that this is the grandest achievement of omnipotence. To translate a man from the power of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son, the changing of a bad heart, the subduing of an iron will, but thanks be unto the Father, he has done all of that for you and for me. And he has not stopped, and he will not stop. So where? Where, where is this work taking place? Where is, is God's power at work? And it's really, it's two places, but in essence, it's actually one place. And it's also really more of a who. God is at work in the church. To Him be glory in the church. You are the sphere of God's work. But it's not just the singular you as individuals. We've been talking a lot about, about that. We have a tendency to take that and put it, take it on ourselves as individuals. But what He has in mind here is corporate. To, to, that, that He would be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus. Our culture is so self-centered and so individualistic. We really need to intentionally break away from that thinking and be thinking corporately. Be thinking corporately. When Paul adds here, at, at, and when he adds in Christ Jesus, he's explaining, he's really saying that, that God's purpose is in Christ. Christ is the, the head of the church and the source of the church. And we've seen again and again and again and again already how, how everything in the first three chapters of Ephesians is in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. God's glory is most gloriously displayed in uniting us in Christ, uniting us with Christ, and uniting us together in Christ. Again, this is not just you individually, but this is you as a body. This is a plural you. We really need to fight against that individualism. It's not just you. It's not just you and your wife, or you and your husband. It's not just you and your kids. It is us together. But when you love one another and serve one another, when you're kind to one another, when you forgive one another, when you encourage one another, when you submit to one another, when you do all the things that the Apostle Paul is talking about in the second half of Ephesians, then you are glorifying God. He is glorified in you. He is glorified in this church. Are you seeking to live those things out that the Apostle Paul commands here in the second half of Ephesians? How much time have you spent as we've been walking through Ephesians praying specifically for these things, for yourself and for this church? Maybe very little or not at all, but I would encourage you and call you to repent of that. To ask the Lord to forgive you for your prayerlessness and and to help you to be praying specifically for, for these things. You can really tell how important these things are to you by the amount of time you spend praying for them. And we all, myself included, need to spend more time praying for these things. Praying individually in our, in our families and corporately praying for these things. Because prayer is the means by which God has ordained that these things would happen. Paul just prayed for, for the Ephesians. We need to pray it for ourselves. But it's not just here in this church. 
this is the, the local church where a lot of these things are, are being lived out, but, but what the Apostle Paul here has in mind is the universal church, the, the church from every tribe and, and tongue and language, the people, the, the, the church of, of every Christian around the world is what he has in mind here. So when we pray for our brothers and sisters beyond these walls, when we seek opportunities to, to serve and to, to work with Christians in Kelowna and, and in this region. When we, when we do that for the spread of the gospel. When we send money to, to support missionaries who are serving in other countries. When we send missionaries into other countries. Then God is glorified in this church. The church is the primary sphere of God's work in the world. The church is to give glory to God. This is really your most important responsibility. Every other responsibility that you have subsumes under the responsibility to glorify God. Whatever work you do, it's under that responsibility of glorifying God. If you are a, a brain surgeon, it's, it's to be done for the glory of God. Whatever you do, as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a student, as a, a church member, what, whatever you do, it is all under the responsibility of being for the glory of God. We need to ask ourselves, Repeatedly, what is my life being lived for? What am I living my life for? Is it really for the glory of God or is it something else? And again, the reality for, for a lot of us, a lot of the time, is that it's really for something else, isn't it? But when we begin to see what God is doing in His church, when we begin to see what God has done for us in Christ, that he sent His Son to die for our sins. His holy, perfect, righteous Son who never sinned, ever. He's the only one in the history of the universe who has ever loved the Lord as God with all of His heart, all of His soul, all of His mind, and all of His strength. He's the only one who ever loved His neighbor as Himself. The only one. So none of us can say, well, yeah, God, I, you know, I was pretty good. I, I helped that, that elderly lady across the street, or I, I gave to charity, or, or even I shared the gospel and with, with 100 people, and they all got saved. We can't take credit in any of that stuff because we all have weaknesses and failings. We are all still sinners, and we all still need the righteousness of Christ. We all need His perfect work applied to our lives. We need all, all of our guilt and all of our sin applied to Him. We all need the gospel. And the more that we spend our lives thinking about the gospel, focusing on the gospel, thanking the Lord for the gospel, preaching the gospel to ourselves, not just listening to a preach on a Sunday morning, but regularly, daily, reminding ourselves, calling our minds to these things, that's... You no, know, the type of things we're talking about here are the things that are going to happen in your life. You will begin to see those things. You will be seeing, begin to see God's power working more effectively in your life. 
Well, finally and, and quickly, when does this take place? The short answer is always. Always, throughout all generations, forever and ever. This is assured. God will be glorified in the church and in Christ Jesus for all time. This is a guarantee from the omnipotent God. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church universal or any local church where God is truly there. It will happen through God's sovereignty. But, but when it comes to our sanctification and the work that, that God does, it is also our responsibility. That our salvation is monergistic. God alone does it. But our sanctification is synergistic. God works and we work for our sanctification. And part of the sanctification is to seek to do these things, to seek to proclaim these things from, from generation to generation. We all know the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Well, I hope you know the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 7. Considered really to be the most important verse in the whole Old Testament. Hear, O Lord, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. There's that great commandment. And, the, and these words I shall command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. Bad news, they say, travels fast. But shouldn't good news travel further? Shouldn't good news travel further, and especially to our own children? To preach the gospel to our children, to, to live it out in our families, and, and even in this church, to, to preach it to the next generation coming up. We have several pregnant ladies in this church. This church is, is growing, maybe not through conversions as much as we would like, but it is, it is growing through, through babies. And we hope and pray that these babies will, will come to saving faith in Christ. And we all, not just the parents, but all of us have a responsibility to preach the gospel and to live out the gospel before these growing children. Joel 1.3 was the bad news. Tell your children of it and tell your children and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. That, that's the telling of God's judgment against his people. But in Psalm 74, people respond to God. We will not hide them, God's truth, from their children, but tell them to the coming generation, the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might, the wonders that He has done forever. And so God and His people, God works through His people in order to proclaim those truths and the things that God has done to a coming generation. And the final, final word in chapter 3, Amen. Can you say amen to those things? Amen is really the only right response. It's the only right response. What would it look like 
in your life, if you truly responded with not just the words Amen, but the Amen of your heart, remember, by that same work of God, by His power at work in, you, in your heart, what would your life look like? What would your family look like? What would this church look like? It makes my heart race a little bit with excitement to, to think about what this church will look like as God continues that work that He's begun, as He's glorified in our midst. So what do you imagine? What do you imagine? God can do infinitely greater. He is not limited. It is only our ability to imagine big enough. And only our ability to pray, to pray big enough that is limited. The biggest part of our problem is not that we're dreamers, but that we're dreaming too small. We don't dream big enough. Let's pray together. Great God, Lord, you are infinitely above us, but Lord, you condescended to come to us in your Son. Lord, we thank you for your Son. We thank you for his perfect righteousness credited to our account. We thank you, Lord, for our, that, that our guilt has been credited to his account. And so that we can be called not guilty. We thank you, Lord, for the display of your power that was at work in us when you raised us from the dead, as you raised your son from the dead, when you seated Christ in the heavenly places at your right hand, and when you have seated us with him in the heavenly places. Lord, we thank you that that power has not been exhausted and never will be exhausted. We thank you that that work has never stopped and it will continue until you return or take us home. Lord, we thank you for your church. Lord, your bride that, that Lord Jesus, you, you purchased with your blood. Lord, we thank you for, for this local church here, for every blood-bought man, woman, and child in our midst. Lord, we thank you for the church universal. For the people from every tribe and tongue and nation, then, Lord, we, we look forward to the day when we will worship you together around your throne and say, worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive glory and honor and power before all time, now and forever. And Lord, until that time, would you help us as a people to, to live for the glory of your name? Lord, would you help us to imagine great things, things that line up with your glory? And to seek by your power at work in us to live those things out for your glory. We ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, the only Savior.